Good morning. It's good to be here. It's good to see you. It's a little bit hot. Nick will get us cooled off, I hope, here in just a second. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 67. Nick, if I need to do something different, just tell me, brother. Psalm 67. Let's pray together. Father, you are glorious and good. We come today to think about a prayer, Father, that you would be glorified in the nations so that all the nations would be glad. There is gladness in you, Father. Only ultimate and final and supreme gladness is found in you through the Son who gave his life on the cross, was buried and rose again. This is the promise and the hope of the gospel. And we pray, Father, that it will be clear in our hearts and in our minds. And we pray that as we continue to go to the nations, we would declare that message. For all eternity is hope for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm grateful to be in a church where missions is alive and well. You just saw the video a moment ago about the group who went to, uh, to Haiti. Joel recently went to Spain. Um, Sierra is in the Middle East right now, and Valerie is uh, in Mongolia. And there may be one or two others that are so classified, I don't even know what they're doing right now, but that's okay. I'm also glad to see, excited to see, a month-long emphasis of, series of sermons on missions. Next week we will have a special panel to encourage us in that way. All of these are meant to help us be reminded of our highest calling, that is to bring glory to God by making disciples across the street and around the globe. Earlier, Pastor Chase read Mark's version of Jesus' discourse on the end times. A key sign or indicator that uh, Jesus' return draws near is in verse 10 in that passage. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Remember, as the Bible speaks about nations here, we know we're not talking geographically. We're speaking more with respect to people groups. And God has been gracious to Christians in America because he is bringing the nations to our doors. And so there is a notion of going across the street to find the nations, just as there is to go around the world for that. Taking the gospel to the nations has been on the mind and the heart of God since the days of Abram. We would read in Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see it at the very beginning there. And then in Isaiah, we find Israel being blessed by God so that other nations would praise him. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says, It is too light a thing, Israel, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In Acts 9, Paul is dramatically converted He's ordained and he's sent out to be an evangelist to the Gentiles. God's plan from the beginning and to this day until Jesus comes again has been to reach every tribe and tongue and nation with the hope of the gospel. We call that missions. What do you think of when you think of missions? 
I'm mostly in a Southern Baptist world, and so when I think of missions, I think of Lottie Moon. I think of Annie Armstrong. Linda Clark is here today, and if you ask her what she thinks of missions, and you sit down for a while, she's going to tell you all about the impact of WMU in the life of missions. And I'm grateful for her service and ministry in that way. We imagine untrained pastors in Kenya that a team from First Baptist Charlestown is going to go to help in, in the 1st of October. We imagine the lost tribes in Nepal where other church planter Brad Walker from Redeemer went with a team here a few months back to try to reach out to. We imagine as we saw the un, undescribable poverty, distressful poverty in Haiti. Nearer to home, I think of disaster relief teams. I think of backyard Bible clubs. If you were here Monday through Thursday or any of those nights, you would think of vacation Bible school and fall festivals. All of these are the demands and the opportunities of missions. Well, recently that's called for the church. We need to, to be missional. And we need to be missional both far and near. Well, today we want to look at missions, and we want to look at praying for missions from Psalm 67. If you turn there, if you have Psalm 67, read that with me. It's not a long psalm. Psalm 67, beginning in verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us and let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Drawing from verse 7... I think we can make an argument that the ultimate goal of missions is worship for God. I'm using the notion of fear, transferring it through the, the more, the more uh, concise revelation of, of reverence, perhaps, carrying that out into a bigger field to think about fear as worship for God. In verse 3 and in verse 5, the psalmist is praying that God would be praised throughout the nations. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Following the models of Abram and Isaiah and Paul, and Jesus, do we pray that God would bless us so that others might come to know Him through our blessing? That's what God's call to Abram involved. I will bless you and make your name great and so that you will be a blessing. In you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do we pray for missions that way? For today's sermon, I'm calling uh, the title for that as we think about it, God-Centered Praying for God-Exalting Missions. God-Centered Praying so that God would be exalted among the nations and be praised. That's what Psalm 67 is doing. God-Centered Praying for God-Exalting Missions is how we ask God to bless us so that others will come to know Him. The main thought I want us to get this morning is this. The goal of missions... Praying, the goal of missions praying, and the goal of missions giving, and the goal of missions going, is that God would be praised or worshipped in all the nations among all the peoples. Psalm 67 is a missions-minded psalm. I think it offers for us a, a recipe or a way that we can pray for missions. 
There are three outcomes that I want us to see this morning or purposes as we pray for missions. The first of those is to make God known. The second of those is to make people glad in God progressively. And the third of those is to make God supreme in the hearts and the minds of all peoples. I have chosen that word make as my points this morning to help us capture a sense of intentionality, to help us capture a sense of strategy that we need to be about. I fully realize that the hopes and the promises in Psalm 67 belong to the decrees of God and the purposes of God for the glory of God. Nevertheless, the Bible teaches us, and our experience would show us, God-glorifying prayers and God-glorifying efforts invite God's favor. And so we pray that way. Since Psalm 67 appears in the form of a prayer, we should approach it as a guide. I think it's a helpful tool for us. Verses 1 through 3, commend us to pray. Our missions efforts, they commend us to pray that, that as we go about doing missions, we would seek to make God's way known on the earth. Here's how I want to capture that in the first point. Making God known, turning blessing into praise. Making God known, turning blessing into praise is where we're going with verses 1 through 3. When you read verse 1, if you know the Old Testament a little bit, you might recognize it as adaptation of the Aaronic blessing in number 6. That, uh, in number 6, 24 through 26, I think, he talks about God's blessing there and God's favor and the peace of God on the people. In Psalm 67, the writer of the psalm adds a purpose to that request for blessing. God's purpose in blessing his people is to reveal himself to the nations, especially his power to save. See that with me. May God be gracious to us. May he bless us. May he shine his face upon us. Why? So that your way may be known, O God. So that your saving power may be seen throughout the nations. Jeremiah helps us here. In Jeremiah 9, we read that God, we see that God delights in being known in this way. Verse 23 and 24, Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, says the Lord, I delight. Psalm 67, verse 3 and 5 echo that ambition for us. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. God makes himself known on the earth, ultimately, so that the peoples may praise him. I want to draw four gospel implications or four missional implications from that brief summary of those three verses. Our focus in missions should be to reach those who do not know the God of the Bible so that, first, God would not be seen around the world as one choice among many. May God, who made heaven and earth, be gracious to us and bless us, the psalmist writes. God is jealous for his own glory, and he acts throughout the earth to bring himself honor and fame. The second implication is that God is not a passive bystander in any impact of the gospel. In his way, it is his power from which he draws praise. God being who he says he is and doing what he says he will do, that's the gospel. The gospel is God being who he says he is and doing what he says he will do. And that draws praise from the nations. 
The third implication that I would see here is that God does not waste His grace. Say amen. That's almost right. God does not waste. You get used to it. Just keep practicing. It'll come to you. God does not waste His grace. Through God, He makes His saving power known throughout the nations. The fourth implication is this. God blesses the elect. God blesses those of us in this room who are saved. God desires to save more so that through the ones that He saves, He might expand His kingdom. Let all the peoples praise you. God blesses people so that people will praise Him. That's how we should pray for our missions. His blessings are always pointed to His own glory. Seeing the psalm centered around God in that way helps us know how to pray. When we pray for a trip to Haiti or we pray for Sierra in the Middle East or for Valerie in Mongolia or as we pray for Joel in Spain, he is going out. God, bless Joel so that Joel will be a blessing to the people so that the people will know you. Turning blessing into praise is the work of God through missions as believers strive to make him known. And look with me in verse 4 and 5. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Our second point would be this. The first point was to make God known, turning blessings into praises. The second point is to make people glad in God, turning the rule of God into rejoicing, turning ruling into rejoicing. I see two reasons here in verse 4, how God exalting missions leads people to be glad in God. Both of them are connected to the gospel. The first one is this. God exalting missions leads people to be glad in God because God's rule is just and it is right. The psalmist writes, For you judge the nations with equity. In third world countries, as in Haiti, or in the U.S. to a much lesser extent, the poor and the underprivileged do not have the same access to justice that those who are not poor or underprivileged. Those who are wealthy or privileged have a, have a greater access to the justice that we know about than those who do not. In the Old Testament, it's not the way God designed it. In the Old Testament, His law set forth a judge. And one of the roles of this judge was to look out for such people. To take care of those who were poor and oppressed so that they would have justice as well. So when we carry the good news of the gospel to those who are unsaved, we want to see the hope for them that comes in the rule of God throughout the nations. The God of the Bible is no respecter of status or wealth or privilege. That's what the word equity conveys. God is compassionate to the hurting. He is compassionate to the helpless and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. For all of those who are abused in such ways, they will be vindicated through the judgment of God. Peter wrote about this. Peter wrote about God's judging in such ways when he told believers how Christ reacted to injustice. Christ reacted to injustice by continuing to entrust himself to him who judges justly. And when we take the gospel to the nations and they begin to believe in Christ and they are treated unjustly, they can continue to entrust themselves to God, the one who judges justly. Because the glorious day that we just sang about is coming. It is coming. The gospel proclaims that God's rule in just, is just and right. He always judges the peoples with equity. The second reason God's people will be glad is because God, God's watch care is near and active. 
He guides the nations upon the earth. Think about that with me for a moment. He guides the nations upon the earth. And we could get into all sorts of conversations about how meticulous his providence is. And I would love to have those conversations with you. But at the very least, this verse speaks to a sovereign God. One who rules over every inch of his creation. It speaks to a very active guidance here. What we call providence. God is investing himself in the well-being of his creatures We want to be able to see that every good thing that we have comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father. We want to to let other people in other nations see this reality. The gospel reveals the bad news about each of us. We're all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. Before coming to Christ, all of us were rebels against God. Those who are in rebellion against God don't care much for God's rule. Those who are in rebellion against God don't really care that God, they don't want to know about the rule of God in their lives. Why? Because it calls out their sin and highlights their guilt. But the gospel also reveals good news. The free gift of God is eternal life to all who will repent and trust in Jesus. Those who come to believe that good news come to be glad about God's rule. And they come to be glad about God's providence. Through Christ, they come to understand why the sovereign rule and guidance of God gives them reason to rejoice. Their hope is present and their hope is eternal. In thinking about God's rule and thinking about how that impacts the lost uh, around the world and thinking about how, how we can make God's rule, how we turn the rule of God into rejoicing in the nations as we go out with the gospel and make people glad in God. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and you've not really contemplated God's rule and God's watch care in such ways. Perhaps, perhaps you've experienced the injustice of an unwanted divorce or a lost job or some kind of forced unfairness in your life. Perhaps you've asked, where is the equity in those situations, Christian? Where is the God who judges the nations with equity when that's taking place in my life, Christian? Perhaps you've asked that. And if I were an unbeliever, I would ask the very same questions. And I do not promise you for a moment that turning to Christ will restore your marriage or find you a new job. I do promise you that turning to Christ will give you hope and it will give you help in coping with these setbacks in your life. I do promise you that Christ has shown the way for you how to endure such trials with joy because he endured such trials with joy for the promise that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of God. And he will give you what you need to persevere so that what Pastor Chase read for us, those who endure to the end shall be saved. I can promise you that because turning, I can promise you that because turning to Christ assures you of an eternity in heaven with God where there'll be no more divorce, there'll be no more lost jobs, there'll be no more disease, there'll be no more inequity, there'll be no more denying, there'll be no more dying. I invite you, if that's your situation, to turn to Jesus today. The rule of God can only become rejoicing when you experience the grace of God. The rule of God can only be sweet in your life when you come to understand how Jesus died for your sins. The rule of God can only become rejoicing when you ask God to forgive you of your sins and you say to him, I want to place my faith in Jesus. You say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. I want to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Will you save me, God? And I answer you from the promise of God's word that yes, he will.
If that's your desire today, you want to know more about that, please see me after there are a number of people in this room, perhaps the one you're sitting next to, who invited you today, if that's your situation. They will be glad to talk with you about that. A few years back, I read John Piper's book on missions. Many of you have read it, Let the Nations Be Glad. That book helped me see three outcomes, three outcomes that come from finding gladness in God. We're still in verse 4 as we think about this. Making uh, people glad in God, turning ruling into rejoicing. One outcome is assurance in our salvation. The spirit of gladness in our heart, Christian. The spirit of gladness in our heart testifies to the saving power of God in our heart. Because there are many things that go on in our life that's not going to make us glad. It is a spirit-infused gladness that we have in mind here. A second outcome is increasing motivation to proclaim the gospel to the lost. Finding gladness in God motivates us to share with others so that they too might find gladness in God. We see this in John 1 in two episodes that we both know very well. Andrew found Jesus, and Andrew went to tell Peter we found the Messiah. Philip found Jesus, and Philip went to tell Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. When we rightly consider the grace of God in our salvation, our hearts are filled with gladness. And that gladness should overflow then into telling others why we have this gladness in our life. Even if we lose our job, we are glad in the ruling of God because we know that He is sovereign and He does all things and works them together for our good. That gladness should overflow into telling others. Gladness motivates telling so the first outcome that I see is assurance in our salvation and increasing motivation to proclaim the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. And the third outcome is unending praise for God. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. God is sovereign and he is active. That's what verse 4 is telling us. We show our gladness by praising him in good times and in hard times. So as we read verse 4 and 5, we want to pray. That our missions efforts will teach others not just about Jesus, but how to be glad in God. Let us also pray that our missions efforts will show the supremacy of God throughout the earth. Look at verse 6 and 7. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. I'm reading the psalm and I'm studying it and I'm thinking about it. And I get to verse 6. I'm inclined to ask, why is verse 6 in this psalm? How does verse 6 fit with verses 1 through 5? I track verses 1 through 5 pretty well with the notion of praying. But then we get to verse 6. Why is verse 6 there? It's okay to ask questions of the Bible like that, by the way. It's okay to do that. It's a good way to help learn and study and understand what God's trying to do. It's okay to ask those sorts of questions of the Scripture. God, why is verse 6 in the Bible? And then you let the Spirit teach you as I hope He taught me. Verse 1 through 5 are in the language of prayer. We understand that. Verse 6 and 7 are an expression of the confidence that God will answer that prayer. Oh, by the way, that's a pretty good way to pray. To start out asking God to do something for His own glory and then to express confidence into the, at the end of that prayer uh, not that we're going to rule God, not that God is a debtor to us, not that He is obligated to answer our prayers, but we know that we go to Him for His glory. He is going to find, we're going to find favor in His answer to those things. And so like the psalmist, we can express confidence that God, our God, shall bless us. I 
finish my thinking about that, verse 6 and 7 remind me that God will answer prayers that seek to make Him supreme. God will answer prayers that turn blessings into worship. Attract this thought with me for a minute. In the context of Psalm 67, I'm glad we just saw the video on Haiti because you see the great need there. All you got to do is look for a minute. If you, if you have any sense of geography, we know the catastrophic circumstances that continually face uh, Haiti over and over, year after year. I see verse 6 as a reference to God's provision and blessing. The earth has yielded its increase. There might be a hint here of the end times. I'm not sure. I don't want to track it that way. and We don't need to. But I do see God's provision and blessing. The earth has yielded its increase. And when I think about that, from a missional perspective, I arrive at this statement. God's provision demonstrates His love and His sufficiency. God's provision demonstrates His love and His sufficiency. You can't see because it's pretty subtle, but I'm wearing the NAM colors today. I, I'm blessed to be a trustee for the North American Mission Board for the state of Indiana. I know, so what? I'm just sharing that. Stay with me here for a minute. All right? The ministry of the North American Mission Board is deployed in two related ways. One of them is called Sin Network. The other one is called Sin Relief. You're familiar with Sin Network. Sin Network is the church planting world. That's been getting almost all of the attention the last five or six years. Lots and lots and lots of attention. Sin Relief is newer. It's about 18 months old now. The vision for Sin Relief is to deploy generous compassion for the sake of the gospel. So we see those two arms working together. Both Sin Network, the church planting world, people going out, reaching communities for Christ, being new and different in their community, and, and, and being able to reach that particular community. We see that taking place for the sake of the gospel. And Sin Relief takes place so that giving of blessings can be uh, for the sake of the gospel. They are connected. Sin Relief and Sin Network are connected by vision, strategy, and objective. That is to win the loss to Christ. That is to turn blessings into worship. That is to make God supreme in the hearts of the people. Can you see the missions in that? Thinking about what we just did in Haiti, can you see the missions component in that? We go to distant lands to proclaim the gospel. The vision of Haiti at this particular time is to go to make them better at what they do there on the ground. That was the vision at Harrison Hills where I pastored for nine years. We weren't very big. We were not particularly, we were not, we were not packed with a bunch of people who were good at sharing their faith. We had two guys that were very good at it. The rest of us, not so much. And so I'm taking a 1 Corinthians 12 approach to how we can do missions at Harrison Hills. We had a lot of people who were good with their hands and loved to use their hands in that sort of way. And so our vision for missions became what apparently our vision is for missions in Haiti at this moment. Our visions for missions while I was there was to go to help those on the ground do what they do better. Whatever that looked like. In Canada, it looked like prayer walking and handing out flyers and information about church plants. In eastern Kentucky, it looked like going into a community that was 70% funded by government relief. Coal mining community is no longer a coal mining community. Down there, it looked like building facilities, including a rodeo ground because they're teaching young kids how to ride and rope so that they can share the gospel with them. The point of all of that is that we go so that we can declare the gospel. We go, we went. We go to Haiti, the same reason, so that we can let them be better, help them be better at doing what they can do on the ground that we can't do. We must go to distant lands to proclaim the gospel, 
And we must use words because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But missionaries, especially in poor areas, missionaries in poor areas realize that before words will resonate, actions must bring relief. Before what you say about Christ is going to land on them, you've got to do something to help them in the dire situation that they're in. And then you explain the purpose for your help is that the love of Jesus doing that. Verse 6 helps me remember that tangible acts of compassion display the concern of God for those who are hurting. So then the God-exalting goal of compassionate missions is that blessing will become worship through the ends of the earth. The Bible reminds us that compassionate ministry offers two things. It offers a present hope. Present hope. You go and you build something that they can use after you leave. That's a present hope. It offers a future promise. The present hope is seen in the provision. The present hope is seen in food for their bellies. The present hope is seen in bandages for their wounds, fillings for their teeth, glasses for their eyes, training for jobs. That's the present hope. These provisions then become a tangible form of promise. Follow me here, please. These provisions become a tangible form of promise that the blessings of God are sufficient for their needs. Those blessings then, to the glory of God and by His sovereign decree, those blessings become worship. What's the conclusion of this way of thinking? The promise that God is is sufficient, invites reverence or worship. Let all the ends of the earth fear God. Now I trust that as we look at Psalm 67 this way, and I think it's an appropriate way for us to look at it, I trust that this view will help the church keep a right perspective about our missions. Several objectives are worthwhile, compassion, training, provision. All of those are important and good. We need to go and we need to do all of those sorts of things. But the supreme way that missions is worthwhile is that missions exalt God. Make Him known. Make people glad in Him. Make Him supreme. Psalm 67 is a psalm of praise in the language of prayer. Praise to God, verse 1, becomes a prayer for the nations. See that? Praise to God becomes a prayer for the nations. And as the psalm begins in the language of blessing, it ends that way also. It begins with a confident prayer. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. And it ends in confident praise. God, our God, shall bless us. He shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. There are no commands per se in here for us. I think the general application would be to remember to pray that God would be exalted in the missions endeavors at Oak Park Baptist Church. Before I close, I want to draw four conclusions, if I can, about how praying that way will guide our involvement. Four conclusions, summaries, if you will. Praying that God would be exalted in our missions efforts invites the Spirit's influence and the Spirit's power into our plans and purposes. Let me say that slower because I talk fast. There's a couple of amens. That's all right. Praying that God would be exalted in our missions efforts 
invites the Spirit's influence and the Spirit's power into our plans and into our purposes. Second, praying that God would be exalted in our mission's efforts sharpens, focuses our thinking about missions because it's going to direct our plans and our purposes Godward. What are we going to do on this trip that's going to cause them to praise God? When we pray that that's our endeavor, when we pray that that's our aim, then that sharpens our thinking about missions. When others hear you pray about missions in such way, it stokes their thinking about missions. And it directs our plans and our purposes Godward. A third conclusion. Praying that God would be exalted in our mission's efforts moves our individual thinking, listen, it moves our individual thinking away from matters of cost and convenience and calendars. It's okay, you don't have to raise your hand if I ask you, is that sometimes the way you think about missions? It's okay. But praying that God would be exalted in our mission's efforts helps to shift our thinking away from that and motivate our decisions about giving and going and praying to be driven by opportunities and goals. Say it again, because there's a lot in that. I'm, I'm just like you. When I first hear about a mission trip, when is it? Is it convenient for me to go then? How much is it going to cost me? And I always ask, what's the lodging like? Because I don't sleep well. And I spent four nights in a hammock in Brazil. Let me, hear you, let me say that clearly. I spent four nights in a hammock in Brazil. I didn't sleep. I spent four nights in a hammock in Brazil. So I want to know where I'm going to lay my head down every night before I go on a missions trip. Selfish as that sounds, you can come to me and I'll repent and we'll go forward. But I'm telling you, that's the notion of how all of us think in one way or another. What's in this for me and what's it going to cost me? Let's be honest with one another. But when we pray for missions, when we drive our hearts to pray, God will be exalted if I go to Brazil and don't sleep for four nights in a hammock. If I can pray that way, then my decision is going to be driven more by the opportunity of doing that and by the goal of doing that and not about what it's going to take for me. Fourth conclusion. Praying that God would be exalted in our missions efforts extends into how we carry out every work in the church and in our own personal lives. Missions is not a category of the church. Missions is the work of the church. Missions is not a ministry of the church. Missions is the objective of the church. Piper's great when he says this. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And until the people are glad throughout the nations and they're rejoicing over the rule of God, the missions is not finished. We don't want to miss the point of the Great Commission and the Acts 1-8 mandate. Everything we do as followers of Christ should be missional. So that God will be made known throughout the nations. So that more and more people throughout the nations will find gladness in God. And so that God will be supreme in the hearts and tribes and tongues and nations throughout His creation. So that we can stand in that great host one day and say to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever and forever. 
Oh, glorious day. Let's pray together. Music team, you can come. Father, help us to um, absorb what you would have us to from this psalm. It is, it is written in the form of a prayer, and so I pray we have done right to study it that way this morning. More so, Father, I pray that what we have studied this morning draws our hearts and minds to think more consistently, more consistently, more fervently, more sacrificially toward what we can do at Oak Park in the realm of missions that would cause the peoples to praise you and all the peoples to praise you. Stir our hearts this way, Father. Thank you for being patient with us. Continue to teach us and move in our hearts. We might know the price that Jesus paid for us and we might take the blessings of that into other nations and other peoples that they too would praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.